Lord, we thank you that in our sin, you don't abandon us. We thank you, Lord, that you don't condemn us, you save us. We thank you that you show mercy and forgive us. Lord, I ask that you would continue to pour out your Holy Spirit, your living water in our hearts. Help us to see who you are. To turn to you and believe that we might have life in your name. We pray for your glory and our freedom. Amen. Please be seated. So I know there's a lot going on today, um, including the Western Conference Finals that starts at 2.30 p.m. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. How many of you think that we're going to sweep the Warriors? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you think that we're done? Like it's over? All right. What do you hope is the attitude of every player on the Spurs this week? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you noticed how important your attitude is to daily life? Attitude is so important when it comes to not giving up on that subject at school. Your attitude is important. How you respond to that cantankerous neighbor. Your attitude uh, matters. Being a part of the solution at the problem at work. Your attitude is key. Attitude is a critical component in sports in marriage, in parenting, in ministry, in every single aspect of our daily lives. Winston Churchill says, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. Albert Einstein says, weakness of attitude becomes weakness of character. A philosopher named William James says, Whenever you're in conflict with someone, there is one factor that can make the difference between damaging your relationship and deepening it. And that factor is your attitude. If you want to open your Bibles uh, to John chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning in the Blue Bibles. That's on page 894. And this morning, John gives us a story, a story in the life of Jesus that's all about, guess what? Attitude. Specifically, this encounter is about our attitude toward sin. And it's an encounter of contrast. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, represent the inappropriate attitude towards sin. And Jesus represents the appropriate attitude towards sin. And John wants to make sure that we know this difference. And he especially wants to make sure that we see Jesus for who he is and how he responds. What his attitude is to sin. Why? 
Well, what is John trying to do in his entire gospel account? He's trying to help us see Jesus so that we may believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So having life in Jesus' name, acknowledging him as the Son of God and the Messiah, depends on our understanding and our attitude of sin based on his understanding and attitude of sin. So um, remember where we were last time at the Feast of Tabernacles? Jesus has just come off the feast. He's gone up to the Mount of Olives to pray and he's come right back into town. So the Feast of Tabernacles was this week-long fiesta, right? Can you imagine what a mess Jerusalem must have been uh, on the day after the week-long fiesta? And during this week-long fiesta, there was a lot of worship. There was a lot of teaching. Um, There was a lot of debate, remember, from the last message. But there was also a lot of drinking and dancing and indulgence. And somehow, some way, in the midst of all the revelry, a woman commits adultery. And not just that, she gets caught. And she should have been held in custody and some private place until judgment was ready to be passed. But in this particular instance, she's dragged out into the public so that her sin can be exposed. She's shamed and humiliated. For some reason, people are so angry, they want revenge. They want justice, and they're calling for her to be stoned to death. Now, if you look at verses 2 through 5, we see first the attitude of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. You think what he said on the last and greatest day of the feast had an impact? All the people came back to hear Jesus. So we got another crowd. And people are wondering, questioning, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he sits down and he teaches them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, in a very disruptive manner, bring a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? You hear the heat? What's the attitude of the religious leaders? Woman caught in adultery. She had a moral failure. She broke the law. She violated God's design for the covenant of marriage. And therefore, she must be held accountable. She must be punished. And according to the law, specifically Leviticus 20.10... And Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24. They wanted her stoned to death. Huge crowd of people in the temple. 
This is what the religious leaders bring. Now pause for a second. Can you imagine what that woman was feeling? Can, can, you, can you pause and just ask the Lord if you're having trouble to help you empathize with what that woman must have been going through? Filled with enormous gravity of guilt. Covered in the, the stain of sin and shame. Facing all of these people in the house of God. Humiliated. And more than all else with the fear of sure and certain death. By stoning. Can you imagine what must have been going on in her heart and in her mind? And from what we can tell, everyone is now focused on her sin, the ugliness in her heart, how messed up she is, how could she? And it doesn't seem like anybody cares about her this woman known by God formed and fashioned in her mother's womb created in the image and likeness of God for a good and wonderful purpose no one's caring for her see the religious leaders have a critical eye but they have a critical attitude They're all truth, but no grace. They're all law with no mercy. They are attacking sin without regard to the sinner. What a moment. But it spills over. Because the religious leaders also have a critical attitude toward Jesus. I mean, once you go critical, you ain't going back. It's full on. Look at verses 5 and 6. So what do you say? That's a confrontation. That's a challenge. What do you say? John emphasizes this. They say this to test Jesus. That they could have some kind of charge to bring against him. See, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus with a question. If Jesus says the woman's not guilty, he'd be breaking Jewish law and he'd leave himself open to the charge of being too lenient with sin. That's not what a rabbi does. Therefore, they can discredit him. Well, if Jesus says the woman is guilty and should be killed, he'd be breaking Roman law which doesn't consider adultery a sin or worthy of death, and he'd be criticized for lacking mercy and love. That's not what a rabbi does. No one would follow that. They're trying to discredit him. This is a trap that's coming out of a critical attitude. And what's beautiful in this moment is that Jesus responds with one of the most brilliant 
and memorable replies in the history of the world. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. What does he write? Put that on my list of top 50 things to ask Jesus when I go to glory. And as they continue to ask him, I mean, they're persistent. They got a case they're trying to make. They're attacking him. As they continue to ask him, ignoring right now what he's writing on the ground, Jesus stands up and says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone at her. One's ability to cast a stone at a sinner isn't based on one's love for the law or their knowledge of the scripture or their seemingly superior morality. The only way one has the ability to cast a stone at another sinner is if they are themselves without sin. And so no one has the right to throw a stone at anyone because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. With the exception of one. Jesus. Who was tempted in every way as we are and yet is without sin. So the only one who could justifiably pick up a stone and throw it at this woman is Jesus. So what's Jesus' attitude towards sin? Look at verses 8 through 11. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, meaning I guess he wrote it and then said it, they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones, I guess the ones that have lived longer and had more experience and should know better. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The only one who justifiably could judge and accuse this woman of sin is the only one left. And she's standing before him in judgment. And Jesus stands up. As a sign of his authority. As a sign of his right. And he says to her, woman, where are they? Has now no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. See, Jesus isn't duped by the religious talk of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's not duped by their crafty schemes and their politics. 
Whatever he writes and whatever he says confronts them with their own sin. And they realize that to condemn her is to condemn themselves. They acknowledge the plank that is in their eye when confronted on how they are being critical of the speck in hers. And so they walk away one by one until no one with a critical attitude remains. Now, this is the balance of truth and grace that we always see in Jesus. Remember, John begins his testimony of who Jesus is in John chapter 1 and concludes that testimony in the first chapter or the prologue with the law came through Moses, but truth and grace came through Jesus. 100% truth, 100% grace. He embodies the fullness of both. And so on the one hand, Jesus couldn't be clearer that adultery is sin. He's not condoning her action. But on the other hand, Jesus is not leaving her helpless and hopeless by condemning her in any way. Jesus does not accept or tolerate her sin. He says to her, I forgive you. There is no condemnation for you. And go and stop sinning. Leave your life of sin. Stop that behavior. Repent and believe in me. He's not condoning the woman's adultery. He's confronting it. It's just that he's confronting it with mercy and not condemnation. He's forgiving her, not punishing her. Do do you see who Jesus is? John wants us to see who Jesus is that we might realize that this is the Messiah. And that by believing in Him, we could have life just as this woman has life. This right here, John's including this because it exemplifies the gospel promise in John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That just happened to this woman. This this moment, this encounter exemplifies the gospel declaration that Jesus had just made the day before in the same place in the temple courts. That if anyone is thirsty, if anyone needs provision, they can come to Jesus and drink. And whoever believes in Him, Jesus says, whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. An abundance of comfort, an abundance of life, an abundance of spiritual and emotional and physical provision. And this is what the woman receives by faith in Jesus who rescues her that day. 
And why this is such an important account is because the story of the woman is the story of me. It's the story of you. It's the story of us. It's the story of the world. That we've all fallen short of God's intention for us. We have all crossed the line. We have all disobeyed God's commandments. We have all broken the law. We have all been declared guilty. We are all covered with the stain of sin and shame. Unworthy to stand in the presence of God. And yet, because we so desperately need a Savior, God sends a Savior. And God gave Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might be declared righteous in God's sight. This is the message of the Gospel. This is the heart and the thrust of the ministry of the New Testament which we have inherited and which we carry on today. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a result of his death for us in our place on the cross, you and I can receive total forgiveness and be set free no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've strayed, no matter how far we've fallen. There is hope for us in Christ who pursues us, who picks us up, who embraces us and accepts us and shows us mercy and says, I do not punish you. I forgive you. I do not condemn you, I have come to save you. That is the gospel. It's the hope of this woman and it is our hope and the hope of every family member, every neighbor, every classmate, every co-worker, every person in this neighborhood and every person down the Broadway corridor. This is the message of reconciliation that we have received and that we have been entrusted to carry out in all of our spheres of influence. Sin was strong. But Jesus is stronger. Our shame was great. But Jesus is greater. We were stuck, but Jesus has overcome for us. Now, I'm convinced that whoever it was, whenever it was, wherever it was, that the person who coined people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones was inspired by this story. When we judge, when we accuse and condemn others, we so often project on them what we refuse to see in ourselves. And this can be applied in so many areas of my life. This can be applied in so many areas of life in general. In our hearts, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, our marriages, the church. This is so real. And the encouragement is that we have a Savior that has forgiven us. And the additional encouragement is the reminder that before we criticize others, it's worth asking ourselves whether we're without sin in our heart in this way or in any way. 
And the reason why this is so important is that it is so easy to fall into one of two extremes. This is so easy. And I'm telling you, it is real in our culture today. Either we condemn people or we condone sin. Do you see the contrast? We're either all truth, which leads to legalism, or we're all grace, which leads to license. You know what our culture calls license today? They call it tolerance. It sounds better. And what Jesus says is no. Not all truth that leads to legalism and not all grace that leads to tolerance. But full of truth and full of grace, Jesus says mercy and forgiveness in me. That leads to the grateful response of going and sinning no more. In his love, Jesus doesn't condemn our sin, nor does he condone it. He lovingly forgives all who come to him with repentance and faith. And then gives us the desire and the ability to leave behind that sin and live for him. In accordance with his way for His glory, for our freedom and our joy. This is so important for what it means to be the people of God, for what it means to be the church. And it's the answer to the question, as followers of Jesus, what should our attitude of sin be? Discipleship is imitation. Jesus says, come to me, Follow me or imitate me and I will help you do what I've been doing. Discipleship is imitation. It means having the same attitude as Christ Jesus who says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Who says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Forgive one another as you have been forgiven. Love one another as I have loved you. As followers of Jesus, what should our attitude be towards sin? It's what the Apostle Paul holds on to and and shares with the church in Philippi. What does it mean to be like Jesus in grateful response to what Jesus has done for us? It means doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit like the Pharisees and the scribes. But rather like Jesus in humility, valuing others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others and in your relationships with one another, having the same what? Attitude. That's Christ Jesus. Now, can I end on a quote from Lou Holtz? Lou Holtz says, 
attitude is everything, so pick a good one. (laughs) Today, as we come to Jesus around the table through the bread and the wine, let's pick a good one. Let's choose not to be like the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who are all truth and all legal and all critical and all condemning and all about punishment. Let's choose not to be like the world, which is all grace and all love and all tolerance and all license and you just do whatever you want to do and whatever you think is right in your own mind. Neither one is love. Love is fully expressed in the person and the ministry and the attitude of Christ Jesus. Full of truth, full of grace. That we ourselves might come to Him for forgiveness and life. And that we would bring others to Him for forgiveness and life. Let's have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Slow to anger. Full of mercy. Quick to forgive always bringing people to Jesus for repentance and faith. Why? Because we believe in Him. And that by believing in Him, we have life in His name. And that by helping other people believe in Him, they too may have life in His name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that there is no condemnation for those who are in you. And we thank you that you have graciously died for us in our place to make us clean, to forgive us, to enable us to stand worthy in your presence and to walk in freedom and holiness and righteousness with a new start each and every time we turn to you with faith. And so as we come to you at your table, we thank you that you welcome us with mercy and grace. We thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from your love for us. And we ask, Lord, that we might meet with you. And please, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. Not only cleansing us, but giving us more love. To love you and to love one another as you love us. For the fame of your name and for our joy and freedom. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.